What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Nathan Brown, Global Chief Strategy Officer at UM in New York. We met 14, 15 years ago in Australia at McCann Erickson, where Nathan was leading Universal McCann's media offering. And that group of people at Universal McCann in Sydney has gone on to very, very big, sometimes turbulent, but definitely very, very big things. Nathan, we're going to talk about being a global CSO in media today. It's good to finally have this recorded conversation with you. It's great to be here. And um, before we dive into that, I wanted to just congratulate you on your, your success. Your book um, and everything it surrounds, it's been an inspiration to me. And, you know, like I said, we've known each other for a long time, but it's been great to sit back from, you know, near and far and, and watch you grow and build your thing and um, give so much back to the strategy community and the advertising community. So I just wanted to say that out loud. Thank you. The Australian in me is desperately fighting your words. <laughs> Take the praise. You deserve it. I oh, appreciate it. Appreciate it. So you've been in, in New York for 13 years now. You had a stint in the UK. You've done amazing things. I often think of you actually because I think you're one of those leaders. I have no idea what you're like now, so maybe this is wrong. You're one of those leaders that I think, especially in the media space, that's able to identify and grow talent in media that has a sense of creativity and restlessness in an industry or in a part of our industry that is very infatuated with data and efficiency. Do you feel that my adjudication of you is fair? And are you still doing that? I would say so, and, and, and even more so. Particularly in the US, we live in a very data-rich environment. But I would say, you know, and this is a critique to all, everyone in the industry and around the world, is that we're putting data ahead of what I would call original thinking. I understand why we're the conversation, the narrative around the industry was all around the data capabilities that we have because they suddenly started to become much more real-time, behavioral rather than claimed. Now kind of swinging back into a place where people are starting to appreciate, once again, I would say the lost art of kind of advertising and media, which is around creativity, original thinking that is fueled by the wonderful sources of data that we have now that we didn't perhaps have you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. I think I always talk about when I started in advertising and media as the hope marketing era where we would do stuff, produce stuff, put it out into the marketplace and kind of hope it works. You could be fooled for thinking in the current era of marketing that we're in certainty marketing where everything we do is has a certain outcome or has certainty. And um, maybe we'll be there one day, but we're not there yet. And I think kind of this idea of creativity, original thinking to help brands stand out, be distinct, get noticed and grow, not just at the, the top of the funnel, but with the few, the entire kind of you know, consumer ecosystem, very real. Yeah, I think we're going to talk about a whole bunch of C words today. Creativity, media as commodity, especially buying media from a media agency or through a media agency in, as a commodity, CSO, and then culture. So we'll pepper around these four topics. Do you find the hiring pool different in the US when it comes to, you have an inclination, I think, to want to find people who can do or exist in the media agency environment, but who are slightly rebellious, at least intellectual, right? Is that a common person you come across in the hiring pool? It's not common, but I look for them. We look for them, um, particularly at UM. And I think kind of, we'll call them mavericks. They are folks that um, are naturally curious. They also can look across 
disciplines. In the US, one of the wonderful things about it is this high specialization in areas. So whether it's TV production, media buying, you know, the, you know, some of the best talent in the world in those bad word silos. So incredible talent, but talent that sometimes can't look across and connect and, and challenge and push. And we try to look for people that don't have the typical kind of media buying backgrounds. We'll bring some folks in from creative agencies, some folks in from digital agencies, some folks from the music industry. We'll, we'll bring different people in and balance that to push the craft because I think the craft won't move on in the way we need it to or lift if we're just looking at the same type of talent to do so. Another C word, clients. Do clients want that kind of person touching their business in the US because, you know, I think Australia, we can have a bit of a chip on our shoulder about everything, you know, whether it's coffee, some sport that nobody else plays, for example, or advertising. And, you know, we like to go to Cannes and win all the awards, don't we? Small country, 22 million people. And then you move to New York and you're like, I think I've been brought in because I'm good at what I do. And then you realize the stakes are way higher. There are thousands of people potentially touching a business. So you have to shift and work out how to calibrate to the operating system here. Part of it involves clients. Do clients demand creativity from UM? And maybe this has changed. Maybe it's gone back and forth in the 13 years that you've been here. Are they largely about spend, efficiency? knowing where their money goes, because obviously there have been some issues with media agencies in the past about money disappearing. How much do they demand creativity from you and your teams? I'm finding more and more so. So when I first moved here in 2010, I found the industry here to be more obsessed with things like the upfront, you know, so how we trade media, how do we get the most out of our media deals? And um, that's important and it's still important. But I think you know, clients are really seeing, you know, and understanding this notion of like being differentiated in the world, particularly with addressable media and widely available data sets of behavioral data. You'll find clients and brands, you know, they look at the same sets of data and they end up in the same places. For example, on television, you'll see 10 insurance ads and programs that look exactly the same. You could, you know, change the, the colors out and the brand and um, you see the same stuff. And you get lost. And I think kind of clients here are, are now, I think, starting to really embrace this idea of distinction. And that's not only, you know, in media, but in the creative executions, you know, where they show up, how they show up. And that's exciting because that didn't really exist, you know, in this marketplace 2010. That was sort of an afterthought. Now I think there's a need, not a desperate need, but I think there's a, a certain acknowledgement now that kind of like creating distinction and standing out requires creativity and a different way of looking at the world. When I first came over, I had a few of the meetings I had in large media agencies. The main dynamics that I came across that shocked me a little bit was the infatuation with celebrity and upfronts, the way that a lot of the media teams were quite young and they seemed to just send out briefs to everybody, gather them all and then gradually put them together. But then there also were a lot of meetings where I felt like I was in meetings with accountants. And I was like, where are those comms planners, like the ones that Nathan used to have in his team? Where, like, where's that creative fire? Do you really believe it, it, it's shifted in the 13 years that you've been here? Because when you say that clients are wanting it more, are we talking about them wanting it more compared to not wanting it at all 10 years ago? Or is it now a majority of your clients that demand it and want it? The notion of planning, call it comms planning, call it strategy, whatever you like, has changed. Like I said, when I moved here in 2010, it felt like, the industry in Australia was fundamentally different to the industry in the UK, 
was fundamentally different to here. And I think that's changing. I think no longer are we living in a world where, you know, oh, it's the intellectual Brits or the maverick Aussies or the data-rich Americans. And I can say that and poke fun at those three countries because I'm now a citizen of, of all three of those countries. I think because agencies and clients are now working more than ever in borderless teams, borderless briefs, the transfer of, like I said, intellectual property, systems, tools, enabling these borderless teams are creating like very common views of how to, what best in practice, what sort of best in breed marketing kind of looks like. And I think a planner in the US, a strategist in the US is now, I think, very similar to a strategist in the UK, uh, very similar to a strategist in Australia is, is three examples. Are they perfectly alike? No, but they're much closer than ever before. And clients are as well. Clients used to be feel very siloed in knowledge, um, in capabilities, in expectations. You know, things like the upfront here, you know, kind of like it's still there, it's still important, but it's changing and it's becoming less of a dominant force in media. For those people who don't know what the upfronts are, could you tell us what they are? It's the, the concept of committing media upfront and doing deals with media partners to ensure that you get access to the best inventory. And traditionally here in the US, Demand has exceeded supply. And so the idea of committing money up front to lock in those Oscar programs and, you know, tentpole events, Super Bowl, all those sorts of things was incredibly important. But I think now there's such diversity in choice in media that not everyone needs to commit up front. I think there's more flexibility in the marketplace. And actually, even with some of those more traditional, you know, even network TV partners, there's flexibility in the, in the way they trade and transact with media agents. So it was a necessity in the past. I think it's evolved and that's exciting. Next C word is the word commodity. In the 13 years that you've been here, media agencies were probably really strong and then all this in-housing started to happen. Clients were like, oh, we could bring some of this work in-house. And then other kinds of agencies also started to buy media, PR, digital social agencies started to buy media. How have you seen agencies like UM try to be more than a commodity? more than something that someone in procurement can make a simple decision about because uh, you're charging too much, these people charge less, kind of the same thing. Very briefly from a UM, IPG, media brands perspective, we're not in the business of trying to be the biggest buyer in the marketplace. We'd rather be in a place where we're seen as a consultant almost in terms of how best to go to market. And that is from strategy through to execution. But as you mentioned the word in-housing, there are many clients that are pulling the performance media, and that's great. We've never you know, been opposed to that. There are certain clients that should do that, and there are other clients that need help as they do that. So we've started to really move down this road, and our competitors are as well, of consultancy, helping our clients find the best MarTech solutions for them. Because by the way, there's no single MarTech solution that's perfect for every industry, every category. And so because we look across multiple categories and situations, we can advise clients on that. And we can advise clients on talent, how to get talent, how to find talent, how to retain talent. Increasingly, clients are talking to us about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. How do we attract talent to help them attract talent? So it's less of a them and an us. And our way of getting out of the commodity media buying might of the past is adding value around how you go to market the tech you need to do that, and more importantly, kind of setting the right 
KPIs and outcomes. It's amazing how many brands kind of think generically about KPIs. They don't think about what my brand in my competitive set, what what are my aspirations, dreams, and therefore what are the KPIs for me, not just industry KPIs. So yeah, more of a consultancy approach to you know what was a pretty commoditized marketplace. How do you charge for that? Is that just part of head hours? Is it included? Are you- it's, it's a mixture of both. I think kind of for some clients, it's a little bit of a give to get, depending on what their fee arrangement is that kind of like will give consultancy, knowing that kind of we're remunerated in other places. But for the most part, we work in fixed and firm and flex, you know, kind of um, of models. And because fixed FTE models aren't always the right thing. And certainly, you know, commission-based models of the past aren't the right way to do it. So every client's different and every client's on a different journey. But I think our perspective is it's normally a mixture of fixed and flexed resourcing, depending on where needs are. So for example, if we have from our consulting arm, we might not need people all the time or year round. So we'll bring resourcing in and have resourcing kind of come in you know, when you need it and not when you don't. And then there'll be other aspects of the business, like account leadership, management, all those sorts of things that clients do need on, a, on an ongoing basis. And that will be firm um, and we'll charge accordingly. You were head of strategy at UM in Sydney. You were then kind of running or co-running Johnson & Johnson's partnership with UM, which had enough J3, people, yeah. J3, right? And, and the number of people working with you in that company then is probably bigger than most media agencies outside of the US. So like it was a big situation, right? And then at some point you became CEO of PhD. Correct. And yep. now you're global CSO especially through the US times, how have you found C-Word collaboration with creative agencies? Very good. I mean, collaboration's a funny word. You know, there's sort of collaboration and cooperation. And I think, again, when I first moved here, I found not just creative agencies, but external agencies, PR agencies would often be very good at cooperating, meaning like politely working together. I think you're finding more and more now the good creative agencies, the good PR agencies, the good media agencies I genuinely embrace the idea of true collaboration, which means complementing, not competing, having an appreciation for all disciplines, all angles starting together. So it's not media leads the process or creative leads the process or PR leads the process or the way of working. It's smart people at the table together in service of their clients. And um, is that the norm everywhere? No, but I think kind of at the edge of the spear, those that are doing it really well. I'm seeing that and it's, it is exciting and it's fun. You're seeing people, again, not competing, they're complementing each other around the particular client's needs because um, at the end of the day, it's about clients. Two memories that I have of you and the crew at UM on William Street back then, at least in Sydney, were not only the kind of creative, no-nonsense, but friendly working relationship, high expectations creatively, but also that you were competing. You were literally trying to, trying to take work off us on the upper level at McKay and Erickson. I found it quite interesting. And then in the US, I didn't really find that. I didn't find the competition with other agencies in the way that I expected it in Sydney. And then the point that I actually wanted to get into is I think what you did really, really well, even as a head of strategy, is you would try to get into the room with a handful of people from other agencies to do the work, as opposed to allow the account team of all the different agencies to kind of act like they're collaborating. You would collapse, or we would, but you would also collapse with all kinds of agencies by getting the main thinkers from those agencies together and just working it out, right? Have you been able to do that in the US? Yeah, definitely. And it, I mean, my role now is more of a global one. And we work across global clients, those sort of things as well. But 
The answer in the US is yes. There's more and more of that. I think there's a generation of people coming up through the business that are, they want collaboration and they want to meet and work with people outside of their own organization. And I think not that people didn't want to do that before. Like I said, it was just more of the, the size and scale of the marketplace here tended to create silos. And people weren't necessarily encouraged to go and make friends. I mean, this is a people business. If I think back to the the times when we had worked together and collaborated together, it was a matter of just walking upstairs and saying, hey, I like that guy. I like working with that. I think I can learn from that person. Um, so it's about the client and it's about the task, but it's also about the working environment. This is a tough business. And I say this to myself all the time. If you don't like the people that you work with or you, you aren't creating an environment where you can be you know, excited to work with the people around you. Um, it can be a very lonely place and a very hard place. And I think I seek and I encourage the folks that work with me and around me to go out there and seek and find the people. I was saying, go where the energy is. I would describe in our working relationship back in the days as energy. You had a lot of energy and passion. And I was like, I want to be a part of that. You'll always be able to find energy within an agency, within a partner agency. And that energy is what creates great work. If you spend your days trying to get into people's heads, but are interested in strategy classes, books, and events that get into your head, visit sweathead.com. You can pick up the Kickstarter-funded book, Strategy Is Your Words, by me. Find out about our monthly membership, online classes, and the company training that we do. Yes, this was an ad, a gentle, gentle ad. Back to the interview. CEO of PhD. Why did you take that role? That was a role that, if I was looking back, I'd be stupid not to take. A great brand was then, still is, always will be. It was just an opportunity I couldn't refuse. You know, I knew some of the folks there and yeah, it, it was time for me to step out of being the strategist and take on the next level of a, of a leadership challenge. So I did. I took it. And what did you learn from it? I guess the difference between a CSO, chief strategy officer and CEO is that um, a CEO is responsible for everything. So from profit and loss to diversity, equity, and belonging in an agency. And um, it's a hard job, but it's also a privileged job. You are at the helm of a brand. It's not your brand, but you have the privilege of being at the helm of that brand for a period of time and advancing that brand, leaving your legacy as much as possible on that brand. But it's a tough job. And I think kind of particularly in the last two or three years, with everything the world's gone through, everything our industry's gone through within that. I don't en envy any CEO at the moment. And, um, that separates the kind of the good ones and the, and the bad ones for sure. But you're responsible for everything. The buck stops with you. And I think those that are good find themselves in places where they realize that they are servants to their, their employees and people rather than the other way around. And um, I think coming out of the the pandemic era, whatever we want to call it, as we move forward, those leaders that were in service of their people are the ones that are seeing less attrition, more loyalty, more energy. And yes, everyone's being affected by the great resignation, but there are definitely agencies that are suffering disproportionately from um, the leadership or lack thereof during the tough times that we've all been through. Tell us about some of the accomplishments. Give us two or three. What are you proud of either as an individual or on behalf of the company when you were CEO of PhD? And we'll hopefully talk a little bit about like the I in team. I'm traditionally a, 
a big fan of there is no I in team, but I think increasingly we need we do need to find the I in team, but we'll, we'll get onto that in a second. But I built a good team. I moved across there to PhD with Will Wiseman, my you know a strategist that I'd worked with at UM. We brought in folks like Stacey DeRiso and kind of just good, solid people that can work in a team, have fun, work damn hard, and we grew the business. And that was amazing. But we also went through the dizzying highs and horrible lows together. And there are, you know, you, you win Volkswagen, you win Delta, you win, you know, great success, but then you have losses. You have days where, you know, things don't go your way. The thing I'm probably most proud of is myself and the leaders and the way we dealt with the days that didn't go your way. Because it's easy to, in this industry, in this LinkedIn world where all you see is social media, that the success every day. I think it's important to acknowledge as humans, as leaders, that stuff's not going to go your way and there'll be stuff that comes along. It's not great. doesn't feel good. But it's equally as important to talk about those moments, indeed celebrate them in some ways. And I think we did a really, really good job of that. But it was time. It was time to leave. And, you know, that PhD is a great leadership in place now. And, you know, I wish them nothing but the very best. It was good. Six years of joy, the dizzying highs, horrible lows, and everything else in between. That's a good stint. Can you give me a specific example? I always find it interesting interviewing people who are very smart and strategic, but are also they know they're representing their company. My job is to get you to say something specific. So can you tell us about a day that did not go according to plan? The hardest day I had being the CEO at PhD was losing the GlaxoSmith client business, GSK. One of our biggest clients in the US. I think it was the third time we pitched them, but they were great people to work with. And they were, the, in many ways, the heart and soul of the agency just because of the size and scale of the business. And I realized, you know, third pitch in, two stages in, that, oh, things weren't looking like they were going to go our way. Yet there were seven other stages in that process. And having to put on my game face, knowing that the outcome or the odds, were stacking up against us and still having to take a positive attitude at every step, multiple meetings in London, in hit was really hard. You know, and there were days where I'd sort of go home and look in the mirror and just go, wow, you know, how are you going to get through this? And um, like I said, it's the people that were around me that helped with that. And, you know, we, and we gave it our all. We really, really did. And we didn't win. But it was a feeling of like, you know when you're winning and you know when you're not in a lengthy drawn out process for a big client and you're two steps out of 10 in there going, I don't think this is going to be ours. That's a pretty hard thing to kind of um, to deal with personally, um, but also kind of manage within an organization to keep positivity up. Is that, is that specific enough for you? It's almost specific enough, but like, there's, there's, it's, it's funny, like there's a Ted Lesso in you and sorry to make that comparison, but I see you as a positive person and it wasn't until I, we don't have to go into details about this, it wasn't until I learned how tragic parts of your life have been and people that you've lost where I was like, oh, the positivity exists in spite of some of the tragedy you've been around. I want to point it out because sometimes we could hear someone like Nathan talk about being positive like he's been through stuff. I remind myself of that because sometimes I'm a bit judgmental of people who are excessively optimistic because I come from a dark place. What Mark's referring to is I, I lost my brother suddenly and tragically before I moved to the US. And there's no doubt that kind of in life's ups and downs, it's some of those hard times that do, they shape you. Um, and they also make you realize that 
a little bit, if you can deal with that, you can deal with anything. You know, that's a part of me now. That will always be a part of me. And, you know, so I appreciate you calling that out. But even the, the optimists have bad days. And I think it's great and it's important for everyone to hear that. Kind of want to connect a little bit to that, that Ted Lasso thing. We went for a walk. I think it was in 2020. We went for a walk around Central Park, which is one of my favorite hobbies. And you were talking about what you were thinking about doing in the future. And my sense was you were going to take another big job. I teased you a little bit, I think. I was like, Nathan, you're a company man. You need a company to be a company man. Is that fair of me to think? AI hey, always appreciate our, our chats and our walk and talk. I think kind of men don't do that enough. Yeah, I, look, I, I had the wonderful gift, and I absolutely call it a gift, between leaving PhD and coming to UM to really step back and think about what is it that I wanted, not just in a role, but in an organization. And I, I first and foremost chose values. I've always admired IPG. I spent a lot of my career at IPG. Are they perfect? No. But their values, it's profound to me how different they are, you know, I think relative to some of their competitors to our competitors. Values was something I was really looking for. Looking so, for. Be, be specific about that because if you spend any time in the, an agency in a massive holding company, the people at the center of it are basically accountants and finance people that have created or bought mechanisms through which to make money. And that seems to be all that most of them think about. So what are you talking about when you, and I'm being a little provocative, right? Because I'm trying to get you to. It's a very comfortable place for me to speak because just because of how pr profound the difference has been for me in my experience from very small agencies, big holding companies, those sorts of things is I think, you know, I remember as an outsider looking in, I think IPG were the first ones to acknowledge a pandemic and send people home. IPG were the first ones, well, it didn't take a pandemic to make them realize that diversity, equity, belonging, inclusion out there in the world, but within agencies was important. I mean, that's been on their agenda for 15 years. It's not a new thing. And um, the way people are treated and the way people can bring their best selves, their individual selves to work, whether it be working mums, whether it be caregivers, people that are looking after parents, it's just different. And I tell you, when you walk around the offices here, whether it be at UM initiative, you know, FCB kind of, you see the diversity and it's uplifting. And like everyone, we've got a long way to go, but it, it feels different. And myself, I, could f I feel that I can be myself more. I'm a dad, you know, I want to go to soccer practice, to, you know, from time to time and I should be able to do that. And I think I can do that and I'm never made feel, to feel guilty about that. Um, and so they're, for me, very specific things and experiences that were important to me about coming back. And on that talk, we talked about taking a CEO job again and doing that. And I'm quite certain at some point I will do that again. But I've really enjoyed the opportunity to step back from, like I said, CEOs are responsible for everything. And I mean that everything to sort of say back into the craft of like, what business are we in? Where are we headed? Because I felt like in my previous CEO role, you got so distracted, particularly during the pandemic around the dollars and cents of everything, which you had to. I have this privilege now to spend a year and a half in terms of like, what business are we in? What's our proposition look like? How future forward or future proof are we? And spend time around that. And I think that's really, it's made me whole again, or is making me whole again as a, as a practitioner in, in our business. And that will help me if I'm fortunate enough to take on another leadership role. I know what you mean. So what is the proposition of UM? 
we are in the business of future-proofing brands. And um, you think, well, what brand wouldn't want to be future-proof? We're all about kind of building brands to stand the test of time in this modern era of marketing. And I think we've highlighted a number of things that we think make brands future-proof. And that obviously evolves over time. But we talk to you know, clients about those behaviors and we are building and basically kind of codifying kind of like what makes a brand future-proof. And that's exciting because I think kind of the industry pre-pandemic, during pandemic started to get into the horrible case of short-term-itis. And I think a lot of brands still are. And this idea of having a foot placed very firmly in the now, but an equal foot in the future and really starting to work with clients to say, what are the plans that we need to put in place now that will ensure our chance or increase our chances disproportionately of growth in the future as well? Okay. Stand the test of time. Makes sense. Um, you wanted to talk about the IN team. Like I said, I was always a big fan of the there's no IN team, teamwork, get together. But the last two or three years in this business has taught me that the value of individuality. And I think, yes, I'm speaking to diversity and diverse thinking, but I'm also speaking to the folks that might not be the loudest rooms, sorry, voices in the room, but could and more often than not are are the most important persons in the, people in the room, sorry. And I've really started to, we've really just started to push it at UM and media brands, this idea of the I in team, looking around the talent we have and saying, what do you think? We've all been in those rooms where you had the executive creative director that would dominate a conversation or in many ways bully a conversation through. And we're in such a wonderful space and place in time where I think democratizing voices in rooms and listening I say a lot to the folks I work with, you know, let's have two ears and one mouth, not two mouths and one ear uh, or no ears. Listen to people and the work will get better. And I think as agencies become more and more diverse, so they have more people in their agencies that represent the communities in which we are marketing to, we'll get better work and we'll start to, at best, work that's really, really relevant and at worst, avoid tone-deaf marketing. And I think we've seen some examples, you know, as recently as this week and, you know, around Juneteenth and, you know, just things that are well-intentioned, but they're off because they didn't have the right minds and voices in the room to guide the work. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think that is hard for a lot of strategists where they probably feel that they're relatively smart, but over time you get so used to holding space for the numbers or for the interviews that you've done or you just realize that there's more powerful people in the room. You're like, hang on, what point is my opinion valid and then is valid? How do I express it? Any tips for someone who feels that they've got more to offer to the very next meeting that they go into after listening to this? I think we've moved and are moving away from in advertising and media and outside of that from ivory tower leadership. I think you'll find there's a next generation of leaders coming through and rising to the top that want to hear what people have to say. So if you are a a strategist or anyone out there in the industry for that matter that finds themselves in rooms on Zoom calls and they have something to say, just say it. You've got nothing to lose by doing that. And I think there's everything to gain from that. And the worst that will happen is that'll be, a, oh, yep, thanks for that, you know, and move on. But I think you'll find more and more people will start to listen. And I'm, I've certainly, as I've aged, the power of listening is incredible. And the things that I learn or the things that make me go, oh, wow, I thought I had it all right in my head, but I actually don't that help build, evolve and shape, you know, ideas and, and just the craft and the work. 
Final question for so you. Speak up. Yeah. Speak up. There you go. There's the instruction. Final question for you. So obviously agencies traditionally used to quite a bit of attrition. I remember seeing stats in Australia like 30, 35% attrition or churn every year of employees, right? I think that broadly speaking, advertising and media, et cetera, have some challenges with recruiting the next generation. You know, people want to go into startups. They want to create startups. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that people want to do that weren't available 10, 15 years ago in the, in the way that they are now. What's your pitch to somebody who's maybe a couple of years into their careers, who wants to do strategy, who's thinking about, you know, whether they'd want to do it in an advertising agency, a PR agency or an advertising agency? What would your pitch be to somebody who's open to being at a place like UM? When we started in advertising and media market, it was kind of a kiss your girlfriends and wives and families goodbye because you got to be all in to get ahead. Like I said, I think there's a new generation of leadership that is actively embracing that people that work for you, they want to have side hustles. They want to be dads. They want to be mums. They want to be anything that they want to be as an individual outside of work. And so how best do you bring that into work? And I think um, we're actually, it's funny you mentioned it, we're working on a a campaign, a recruitment drive for media brands more broadly here that is called We, and then in capitals, see you at Media Brands, at UM, at Initiative, at Reprise. And you'll notice the see you is, is all about that, the I in team. And so no matter who you are, what your circumstances are, we see you at the organization and we will find a place for you that allows you to grow meaning career path, planning those sort of things, but more importantly, for you to be you at work, genuinely you. And that means if you've got to leave at five to go home to kids, if you've got to leave at three, you've got to, we see you. We see you as an individual and we see you at our company because of that. To me, it's, you know, and you probably remember those days where you'd be sitting at your desk waiting to see when your boss left and then, and what you did. We're just not like that anymore. And um, I'd like to think our industry more broadly is getting better at that as well. So I think this idea of being your true self at work, vulnerabilities and all, I think is the way forward and certainly where we're, we're leaning into because we believe it. Very cool. Uh, Nathan, awesome to finally capture you in audio format for Sweathead. I honestly, and I said this to Tristan Burrell who worked with you and Lauren who worked with you as well, like Lauren Joyce, I think about you guys all the time. Like every month, I think about you as a reference point for good people that I've worked with. We haven't worked together in 13 years, but I often think of you like when I was in media agencies being briefed on something, I'm like, oh, I wish Nathan was here or, you know, anyway, just wanted to acknowledge that. You're a metaphor for me, you and that team there, beautiful people. I appreciate that. And um, like I said at the beginning, I, I've so enjoyed watching your success. And um, in particular, I kind of, in that time between PhD and UM, I took your book, I read it, and um, it reset a lot of things in my mind because it's such a sort of simple guide to follow and it inspired me. And um, I think you're doing great things. And it, yeah, it's a pleasure, as always, to kind of hang out and talk with you. Thanks, boss. I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for joining me here on Sweater today. If people want to find you on the internet, where's the best place to look? Um, on LinkedIn, Facebook, maybe a little bit Insta. I'm not, as, I'm not a cool Instagram kid, but kind of... Um, you can find me and I'm happy to chat with folks, guide folks. It's one of the big thing about me is I like giving back to the industry within our organization outside of. And um, I always love talking to people 
helping people, guiding people, but also learning from people um, myself because I might be almost 50 this year, but I'm, I'm still someone that I've got a lot to learn. You look about 32. You bastard. All right. On that note, thank you for joining me on Sweathead here today, Nathan. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If it's your first time here, please subscribe. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend or leave a kind rating. For more information about our strategy classes, events, and books, visit www.sweathead.com. And yes, you can find us on Instagram at, at sweathead.